If you have a Bible, please join me at Daniel chapter 7. We always encourage you to follow along with us here at Calvary. But if you're not in the habit, I would especially urge you to have the text open on your lap so that you can see these passages for yourself. I believe it'll be immensely helpful for you to be able to see these words as you're listening, especially because here on Wednesday nights, you know, we only have a certain amount of time, so we take, we're going to take these visions in pretty bite sizes, and we'll have to refer later to the chapter from time to time, so that I think it'll be helpful. This is a wonderfully significant portion of Scripture. In this second half of the book, God reveals to us what His plan for human history is, and we want to remind ourselves that the prophecies in Daniel are absolutely essential when it comes to interpreting the other prophetic portions of Scripture. Let me quote Dr. John Walvoord. He says, Daniel is essential to the structure of prophecy and is the key to the entire Old Testament prophetic revelation. Daniel alone reveals the details of God's plan for both the nations and Israel. And Daniel's prophecies are not only significant, they're also accurate. And they're so accurate that skeptics and critics wear themselves out trying to convince us that they must have been written by an an imposter hundreds of years after the fact. Of course, they have no evidence for such a claim, only an unwillingness to believe that an all-knowing God could actually reveal the future and have it recorded for everyone to read, but that's exactly what happened. Now, when it comes to Bible prophecy, we need to consider our approach to its interpretation. Over a quarter of the Bible is prophetic in nature, and so when you are reading those passages of Scripture, the question becomes, how are we to decode it and understand it? And among Christians, there is, of course, serious division on all of these issues. Let's take the millennial kingdom just as one example. Uh, One group within the church says there will be a literal, physical, 1,000-year kingdom ruled by Jesus Christ at some point in the future. Another group says Christ will only return after we, the church, build the millennial kingdom right here on the earth. Uh, And then a third group says we are in the millennial kingdom right now. So pretty big divides, right? That's that's quite, that's like a Monty Hall thing, door one, two, or three. You get, you know, those are all really different. Uh, And, you know, those are divides not between Christians and non-Christians. That's divides within the church itself, people who are all Christians who are, you know, who love the Lord and and they come to these different conclusions. Now, here at Calvary, we would define ourselves as premillennial, pre-tribulational futurists who believe in the literal interpretation of Bible prophecy. If you want to talk to us about any of those terms or uh, our position on other parts of eschatology, you can speak with me or Pastor Gene or Pastor Jake after our service tonight. We'd be happy to talk to you about that. But for our time and our purposes this evening, we uh, want to remind ourselves that Bible prophecy needs to be taken literally in the sense that it corresponds to real events that have or will actually happen in the world. Having a literal interpretation does not mean that we don't recognize symbols or allegories or figures of speech. And sometimes folks within the church who want to talk about this issue and and take what is called the figurative approach to Bible prophecy, which means that, well, these things are all just sort of spiritual and they don't really correspond to something that is really going to happen. It's just a all figurative. Uh, Sometimes folks in that camp or writers in that camp will accuse folks in the literalist camp of saying, you you believe that every single word is literally going to be fulfilled. 
Well, that's an unfair thing to say about people who believe you should interpret Bible prophecy literally. Of course, people who interpret Bible prophecy literally recognize figures of speech and symbols and allegories and all of these different things. I mean, the Bible says outright that they're symbols and they are signs. And so uh, it's not that uh, every word is going to be fulfilled literally. Here's what I mean. Tonight, we're going to read about a vision of four beasts rising out of the sea. Having a literal interpretation of this vision does not mean we think Godzilla and Rodan are going to come out of the ocean and smash New York City. And sometimes folks on other parts of the the church will accuse those of us who have a literalist interpretation of saying, yeah, you're, you're saying that, you know, that Godzilla is going to come out of the ocean. Well, of course we're not saying that. And that's an unfair uh, accusation to make. Having a literal interpretation of Bible prophecy uh, means that we believe this vision, for example, gives clear symbols of real figures and events that transpire or will transpire in human history. And so I think we're all on board with that, at least with what we're talking about. There are two major reasons why we take the literal approach to interpreting Bible prophecy. Uh, It's important that we talk about these from time to time. First of all, it's really the only consistent approach. And here's what I mean by that. If prophecy is not meant to be read and understood and decoded in a literal sense, where these prophecies correspond to actual things, actual events, actual people, actual figures, then who gets to decide what all of these mysterious figures mean? If we don't allow the Bible to interpret it and explain it to us, and if it's not fixed in reality somehow, well then, who decides? Who's the authority on what this mysterious, almost unknowable figure is supposed to be? Is it someone from the first century, someone from the 18th century, someone from our century? Whose rubric do we get to use? Do we use the Eastern Orthodox Church? Do we use the Catholic Church? Do we use the Protestant Church? The problem with interpreting the Bible prophecies uh, figuratively is that on a philosophical level, it puts you, the reader, above Scripture, and you say, well, this is what I've decided Scripture means, right? Whereas revelation needs to be the other way around, that God has given us his revelation so that we might know him and so that we might understand his will and who he is and what he's done. And though we can't understand all of those things perfectly, the Bible's supposed to be over us and that it is our authority, not the other way around. The second reason for reading Bible prophecy literally is not just philosophical, it's historical. And this is my favorite one. This is, uh, I think, a nearly bulletproof argument when I'm thinking about it. The Bible is filled with thousands of prophecies, right? We hear about that every single Sunday in our prophecy update. And thousands of those prophecies have been really, truly, clearly fulfilled to the letter. All of the prophecies about Jesus Christ's first coming were really, truly fulfilled to the letter, physically. We were told in the Old Testament that the Christ was coming to Bethlehem. Guess where he came? To Bethlehem. We're told an antichrist is coming. Guess what? He's going to come. The problem with taking certain portions of Bible prophecy and saying, well, that's all figurative, that doesn't correspond to reality or something that's actually going to happen is, okay, how can you look back and say all of those prophecies for Christ's first coming, those were all literal. Those were all actual. Those should have been interpreted literally. And then we turn around from our vantage point, look at the same passages of Scripture in many cases and say, well, but the rest of that is all figurative. That's the most inconsistent thing in the world. 
We were told that a Messiah was coming to be born in Bethlehem. A Messiah came and was born in Bethlehem. Now we're told that an Antichrist is coming to rule a revived Roman Empire. Guess what? The same method has to apply. We can't interpret one portion of one prophetic verse one way and then take sometimes that exact same verse and, and interpret the other portion a different way. That's, that's just a silly way to read any book, and especially a book like the Bible. Uh, we are told that the kingdom of Babylon would be followed by Medo-Persia and then Greece and then Rome. And guess what? All of that happened. You can look at history and say, look, that happened, that happened, that happened, that happened. That's why critics and skeptics of the book of Daniel are so vehement of saying, no, 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 he couldn't have written this when he said he wrote it because he got it just right. The same is true of Isaiah. The same is true of all of the Old Testament books. Now, that couldn't have happened because then it happened. <laughs> That's the problem. And now we're told that a physical kingdom ruled by Jesus Christ from Jerusalem will wrap up human history for a thousand years. So why should that be any less literal than the existence of Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome? That's the idea. Now, with that said, we of course recognize that there are lots of variations in the interpretation of prophetic details, even among futurists like ourselves who take these things literally. Here's an example. Some people who are studying these passages in the way we do say the Antichrist must be a Roman. Others say he must be an Assyrian. Others say he must be a Jew. Still others say there is no must in that regard. And those are all people who are sort of in our way of thinking, futurists, literalists who believe that these things are actually going to take place. And that's okay. There is room for variety in these details. But the flow of God's program is pretty clearly laid out if you read literally as a futurist. If you take the prophetic portions of Scripture, like the ones we're getting into, like the book of the Revelation, these other portions, like the end of Ezekiel, like Zechariah, the broad strokes are laid out and defined pretty simply, and you can make real great biblical cases for what God has revealed. And then if you get into the details, well, there's going to be variety, and we have to be okay with that. Uh, I am quite sure that at some point in these six chapters, I'm going to say something or many things that is perhaps different than someone who's a great scholar or a much better preacher than I am says. And that's okay. We don't need to go to war over that stuff. But we do want to try to understand what God has given us to learn in these texts, because God revealed this prophecy and had it written down and had it preserved for you and for me, because he wants us to read these things. It's folly for us to think that we are going to perfectly understand everything about Bible prophecy. No, we're not. But the Lord has given us so that we can uh, know about what he has revealed so that we can read it, so that we can meditate on it, and so that it can impact our lives. Now, in Daniel 7, we're given the vision of four beasts, which correspond to four earthly kingdoms. I say that because we're told directly so. Already, we should be thinking, of course, of Daniel chapter 2 and Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the statue and everything that we learned in that passage. Texts like the one we're about to read don't exist in isolation. That's a way where you can kind of get into trouble if you're reading Bible prophecy. You read a portion of scripture and you kind of read it in a vacuum or in isolation and say, oh, it's saying this. Well, it has to harmonize with the rest of Bible prophecy, right? Daniel 7 has to harmonize with Daniel chapter 2. Daniel 7 has to harmonize with the revelation of Jesus Christ because the Holy Spirit who inspired the scriptures, he's not schizophrenic, Right? It was a progressive revelation, but it is a consistent message that uh, the Lord has delivered. What we'll find is that the overall character of this vision tonight is violence, destruction, brutality, 
culminating in hideous blasphemy. Spoiler alert, that's the way this world is headed. The world as in man's hands is not going to get better and better, it's going to get worse and worse. Now commentators point out that in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, when he saw the succession of these four kingdoms that we're gonna see again tonight, in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, what was it? Oh, it was this glorious statue made of these precious, pure, beautiful metals. Look how magnificent it was. This great statue in the plain, something amazing to behold, right? And of course, it was crushed by that stone that was uh, made without hands. When we see these same four succession of uh, earthly kingdoms, from Daniel's perspective, from heaven's perspective, Daniel's a heavenly-minded servant of God. When he looks at these four kingdoms, he sees them for what they really are. They're grotesque monstrosities that bring ruin and slaughter all over the world. Uh, interesting, the, the, the contrast between man's view and God's view. Let's begin at verse one. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, da uh, Daniel had a dream and visions on, of his head while on his bed, and he wrote down the dream telling the main facts. Chronologically speaking, Daniel had this dream sometime between chapter four and five. It's at least 14 years before his time in the lion's den. And here we're told that he has recorded for us the main facts, meaning there was undoubtedly more detail in the vision, but this is what's recorded for us. Now, before moving on, I'd simply have us note that this great vision came to Daniel during his first retirement. We saw that when we got to chapter five. Belshazzar doesn't even know who Daniel is. He was either retired uh, by choice or forced out of the government. Either way, he's in retirement. He's in his 60s. But here we see this great vision comes to Daniel in his first retirement in the middle of the night. You know, the Lord works on his own schedule and our part is to be ready and waiting and willing to go with him when he gives uh, the go. Verse two, Daniel spoke saying, I saw in my vision by night, behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. In this second half of the book, Daniel refers to himself in the first person. Now to deny that Daniel really wrote these things is to then challenge the truthfulness of the Bible. Listen, if Daniel, who we think he is, if Daniel didn't write this book, then the Bible is not inspired, it's not inerrant as it claims to be. That's just the deal. Uh, if Daniel can't be trusted to be actually telling us the truth, then what right do we have to trust Genesis or Matthew or any other text? And so it is a big deal when people say, well, Daniel doesn't actually need to be, have been written by Daniel. It could have been written hundreds of years later. Then the Bible's misleading you because he says, me, I, I'm the one telling you this message. He speaks in the first person. And we see the four winds of heaven here stirring up a great sea. Commentators argue over whether this is the Mediterranean Sea or not. You know, the specific geography in that sense isn't that important. Some scholars feel it's significant because the kingdoms described all had some geographic relation to the Mediterranean Sea. But as we saw before with Nebuchadnezzar's vision and throughout Old Testament prophecy, the flow of God's program is about Israel more than it is about which ocean they're on, right? The flow of God's program is about Israel more than anything else. There have been many other kingdoms in human history, of course, than the four that are most often discussed in Bible prophecy, the British Empire, the Hun Empire, the Qing Dynasty. But God's prophetic revelation concerns those empires that have a specific relationship to Israel. Or the case can also be made that in this vision, those kingdoms which specifically relate to the conquering of the city of Babylon. As you get into studying end times prophecy, both in Daniel and the book of Revelation, 
Obviously, there's a huge amount of focus on Israel. There's also a lot of focus on the city of Babylon. And so you could make either case here. But generally speaking, in the Bible, the sea is often used as a symbol of the Gentile nations of the world. We see that comparison made in the book of Psalms, in Isaiah, in Revelation. And it's clear that that's the idea in Daniel's vision. We're told as much in verse 17. If your eyes drop down to verse 17 of this chapter, you'll see what it's talking about. Hey, these are kingdoms that come out of the Gentile world. Now, notice the character of the sea here in our verse, choppy, distressed, agitated, restless. You know, on the one hand, mankind talks a lot about and wishes for lasting peace, but on the other hand, history is the story of the raging storm of man's violence, right? Uh, Producing empire after empire, tyrant after tyrant, none of which have brought any true peace to the world. Verse three, and four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. These symbols are decoded for us in verses 17 and 23. The beasts are for kings, not just individually, but also their kingdoms by extension. It's the same pattern we saw in Daniel 2. And Daniel explained this to King Nebuchadnezzar. He said, hey, you, Nebuchadnezzar, are the head of gold, right? But the head of gold also covered the empire of Babylon past Nebuchadnezzar's rule. The flow of kingdoms in this text follows the exact same order as in the earlier dream, starting with Babylon, then Medo-Persia, then Greece, then Rome. Though each of the beasts is different, not one of them is good. You don't want these guys coming to dinner. Each is terrible and violent. They're dangerous villains. Verse four, the first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. A lion symbolizes strength and royalty, The eagle's wings communicate that this lion was not only ferocious, it could move very quickly. This describes Nebuchadnezzar's reign really well. He was undoubtedly king of the jungle, right? There's no king like Nebuchadnezzar. And while he ruled, the empire of Babylon conquered with really great speed. It's one of the things that historians will talk about. But then we see the rest of the verse. I watched till its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man. And a man's heart was given to it. Some commentators like Dr. J. Vernon McGee believe this to be depicting the humbling of Nebuchadnezzar and his conversion. We looked at that in detail in earlier chapters. Other scholars feel that it is referring to the fact that after Nebuchadnezzar died, the kingdom of Babylon became objectively weaker. They lost their lion's heart. No longer did they go out conquering quickly. Uh, The wings were gone. The lion in that state wasn't long for this world, and we see it in verse 5, and suddenly another beast, a second like a bear. The Medo-Persian empire took Babylon overnight, right? We saw that, Daniel 5, Belshazzar's having his big feast, and the next morning, Babylon isn't a thing anymore, at least not the Babylonian empire, it's the Medo-Persian empire. You went to bed under one king, you woke up under another king, Uh, pretty sudden, a sudden appearing in that sense. Now, bears are not known for speed. They're known for what? A sort of lumbering, mauling strength. They're known for just crushing and getting in tight with their prey and just smashing them up. Well, this well characterizes the reign of Xerxes, who historians say took 2.5 million troops with him to march against Greece. Ancient sources record that when Darius III fought against Alexander the Great at the Battle of Isis, the Persians had half a million soldiers in the fight. This Medo-Persian empire was a bear. It was huge, massive. 
And it may have been slower, but it certainly was bigger than the lion before it. In fact, it was larger than any previous empire in history. Verse 5 continues, the bear was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And they said thus to it, arise, devour much flesh. Commentators will talk about what's this, the one side. Well, the Medo-Persian empire was made up of two parts, right? The Medes and the Persians. And it was the Persians that ended up dominating the empire and going out conquering. The three ribs in the mouth may refer to either the three chief cities of the Babylonian empire or the three kingdoms that quickly came under Persian control, Babylon, Egypt, and Lydia. A voice calls out from backstage, as it were, commanding the bear to devour much flesh. Medo-Persia was enormously hungry, fantastically fierce. Herodotus, the ancient Greek historian, wrote this, the armored Persian horsemen and their death-dealing chariots were invincible. No man dared face them. And so... Great description of what, uh, of what Persia was. Verse six, after this I looked and there was another like a leopard which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads and dominion was given to it. And the third kingdom is Greece led by Alexander the Great initially. We're back in the cat family here but this time it's a leopard, not a lion. Now leopards are significantly smaller about half the size of a lion, and yet what they lack in size, they make up for in strength. They've been known to take down animals three times their size. This was certainly true of the lean and mean army of Alexander the Great, which started out uh, small, quickly brought down the giant lumbering bear. If Babylon had been described as speedy in verse four, the lion, well, this beast here, the leopard, is double fast, has four wings, not two. Uh, and, of course, the one thing that every historian wants to talk about when they're talking about Alexander the Great is the in incredible speed with which he conquered the world. The beast here, we're told, had four heads. This is perfectly fulfilled after Alexander's death. When he died, his Grecian empire was divided up under his four generals, four heads over four regions. Now, Daniel's going to spend more time discussing the Greek empire, specifically in chapters 8 and 11, and we'll learn more when we get there. But here we see it says dominion was given to this beast. Now pause for a moment and think through the three beasts that we've seen. The leopard was given dominion. The bear had been commanded by a heavenly voice about what to do. The lion had been handled by some unseen force which could pick it up and pluck off its wings at will as if it was nothing. Above all of these beasts, there was a much higher, much greater power operating. And we're reminded that God, not man, is in charge of the flow of human history. God is in charge. He was in charge then. He's in charge now. He is going to be in charge in the future. And so on the one hand, if you find yourself trusting in some human government, some political party, some elected official, remember what you're seeing here. All human governments, for all their majesty and power and regality and all of that, and there are many promises to do great things. Underneath, we see that from heaven's perspective, they are monstrosities defined by sin, full of corruption. They are destroyers at heart. They're not saviors. Human government cannot save you from the problems of life. But we can continue to hope in heaven because the Lord stands above all of these eras, all of these kingdoms, and he will have his way. And that's a very comforting thought especially as we turn to see this fourth and final beast, verse seven. 
After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had 10 horns. Daniel pauses at the beginning of this verse to gather our attention once again. He says, hey, hey, behold. He doesn't just go one, two, three, four. He says, hey, everybody, hold up for a second. There's one more that we need to talk about. And he spends a lot of time talking about this fourth beast. The three previous beasts were only the opening act for this, the final monster. I don't know if you like concerts or not, but usually you don't go for the opening band, right? You go for the headliner. This guy's the headliner right here. This monster is so terrible, Daniel doesn't bother to liken it to an animal. Notice that. We had a lion, we had a bear, we have a leopard, now we have a beast. And Daniel takes us close up, really close, to take a look at those teeth. It is just this immense beast, terrifying. He doesn't even liken it to an animal. However, like we said before, this passage doesn't exist in isolation. We have other texts to compare this to. And we also know that Revelation speaks of this very beast in chapter 13. There, interestingly, John gives us an additional description, kind of pulled back from Daniel's close-up view. And this is what this thing looks like. John says, the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear. His mouth like the mouth of a lion. A blending of the three great monsters before it, merciless and strong, going out to crush and destroy everything in its path. For his part, Daniel highlights the unstoppable brutality of this kingdom, which is Rome. Rome in its first stage even was a dominant force. One writer said this, the Romans displayed the awesome ability to conquer and hold large swaths of territory for hundreds or even thousands of years if the Eastern Roman Byzantine Empire is accounted for. The Greek historian Polybius recorded this, that at the sack of New Carthage, Roman soldiers were ordered to, quote, exterminate every form of life they encountered, sparing none. So when cities are taken by the Roman soldiers, you may often see not only corpses of human beings, but dogs cut in half and the dismembered limbs of other animals. Dr. John Walvard writes this, the Roman Empire was ruthless in its destruction of civilizations and peoples, killing captives by the thousands and selling them into slavery by the hundreds of thousands. Daniel's prophecy absolutely came true in that sense. Verse eight, I was considering the horns and there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking pompous words. We remember that in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, Rome is the kingdom of iron, but that kingdom is presented what? In two pieces, two stages. You had the legs of iron and then the feet of iron mixed with clay. That wasn't some fifth kingdom. It was the same kingdom in a second stage, uh, iron mixed with clay. And here we see that at some point, a little horn appears, rises up, on this fourth beast. And this little horn is gonna to come to power by overthrowing three of 10 rulers of the kingdom. He will be defined by pride and blasphemy. You're told later in the chapter, he's not just speaking great things, he's not just speaking pompous words, he's blaspheming the most high. And then we're told uh, that, well, we can fill in the gaps of verse eight by looking at verses 21 through 27 of this chapter. We're gonna look at those in later studies, but as we wrap up tonight, here's what we learn about this little horn. This little horn is a man who leads a kingdom unlike any other the world has ever seen. 
which will dominate and rule the whole earth. He will persecute the saints of the Most High God for three and a half years and then be defeated, having his dominion taken away and then given to those saints who will then rule in an everlasting kingdom with the Son of Man. Listen, that simply hasn't happened. Alexander the Great happened. Nebuchadnezzar happened. Xerxes happened. Rome in its first stage happened. This just simply hasn't happened. Rome, in fact, wasn't ever even truly conquered. It fell apart and now waits to be put back together. And when it is, it will ultimately be ruled by this little horn, the Antichrist. We'll learn more about him in future studies. He is real and he is coming. But the good news is this. Christ is coming for his church first. Paul promised in 2 Thessalonians that the man of sin, the Antichrist, would not be revealed until after the restrainer is taken out of the way. It is after the church is raptured to heaven that the little horn will rise up and have his short dominion. In the meantime, we can take comfort in the fact that God is most definitely in charge. Government may not be a friend to us, but we need not be afraid of it in whatever form it finds itself because we serve a God of victory. And in the meantime, we should spread the message that we've received. We saw this last time. After Daniel gets out of the lion's den, what does he do? He hangs out with Darius and tells him about some of these visions. We know that because then Darius parrots back some of those things in the evangelistic tract he sent throughout his kingdom. So Daniel made it his business to share this message, at least portions of it, with people he wanted to tell about God. And prophecy, as we learn all the time on Sunday mornings, is such an important thing. You know, we know it's important because a quarter of the Bible is prophetic. If you pile up all the verses in the Bible and divide them out, like 27% of them were at least were prophetic in nature when they were written. And so this is something God wants to tell us about. It's something he wants us to think about. It's something he wants us to study about. And we should be spreading the message that we've received. From 1918 to 1926, in a remote part of the Himalayas in India, there was a leopard who had developed the taste for human flesh. They're not exactly sure how. During those years, this one leopard killed at least 125 people until he was finally tracked and killed by a hunter named Jim Corbett. Now, imagine you lived in one of those villages, right, during that time, and you knew the leopard was in the area. You saw him coming. And you look out to your neighbor's house and you see little ones playing out front of their little hut there. What would you do? That's fine. The leopard probably won't get them. Well, you wouldn't do that. Even better, what if some traveler had come along and crossed your path and given you the recipe for a simple repellent that would keep you safe from attack, guaranteed? He says, hey, just take some of these things that you have available to you. You put them together. It's a repellent. The leopard can't touch you. Well, of course, you would take advantage of that information, and of course, you would spread that information. You're not a monster. Those are the kinds of things you would do. Now, listen, we're given the prophecy of what is coming in the future. We're not going to be in any part of the Great Tribulation, but a lot of people are, but they don't have to be. And even though we don't want to just go out and only talk about the end times and only talk about the Antichrist, I mean, we want to talk about Jesus Christ, but in reality, these things are coming. Three beasts have come and gone. A fourth is most definitely coming. And those who are not in Christ are as unsafe as a person can be. Now, we know the end of the story, and we know how to get people to safety so that they can bypass those terrible seven years that we're going to learn so much about. 
And so let's spread this message of hope as quickly as we can and then get excited about the everlasting kingdom that's on its way. Studying prophecy is not just about studying the bad things and the judgment and the doom. Studying prophecy is about the end of the book and what's coming, the kingdom that's coming, the promises that Jesus has made to us as his people for that kingdom. He says, I have plans for you. I have plans for my church in that kingdom. Here's what I'm gonna do with you. You're gonna rule and reign with me. Here's what that kingdom is gonna be like. Here's why the world needs to be delivered. Here's what human beings will do to the world without uh, the restraint of the Holy Spirit. Here's the kind of things that sin does. Here's the kind of man that the devil's gonna put up to rule the world. And so we can be excited not about the horrors of the tribulation. We should be excited about the wonders of the kingdom that's coming. And along the way, say, hey, there are people out there who need to be saved from this beast that's coming. And we have the answer, we have the method, we have the information, we have the power of God's living word to share with them, amen?